0: in particular he continually threatened to arrest us. To get arrested isn't much these days because it's been done quite a lot in protest, but that wasn't the case at the time, so we weren't actually looking forward to it, but we thought he probably would. Ah, Merle Thornton.
1: If you haven't heard of Merle Thornton, she's a legend, mate. (laughs) She's 88 years old, she's sharp as a tack, and she will insist on telling you what it was like back in her day. And good thing too, I say, because Merle happens to have one heck of a story. In today's episode, we're going to tell you that story. And we're going to reflect on the last 50-odd years or so for the women of Australia. The good, the bad, and the yet to happen. and the City. G'day everyone. You are listening to Sexism and the City. This is a Plan International Australia podcast and if you don't know Plan International Australia, they are all about equality for girls. I'm your host Jan Fran. Thank you so much for being here with me today. So I was about to tell you the story of Mel Thornton. Does the name bring a bell, Mel Thornton? To do that though, we need to go back to 1965. Uh, I wasn't there. Mel was, however,
0: the social life was very much impoverished for women because they were not really able to join in public social life as individuals. It was okay if there was a, a male tagging along, a chaperone in effect, but women were very importantly confined to the household where they were expected to have some authority about you know, things like the colour of the kitchen, you know.
1: This was a time when the Beatles were on the radio, where you met boys at the local dance, and where it was illegal to serve a lady a drink at a bar. (laughs) Let me say that one again. In 1965, it was illegal to serve a gal a drink in a public bar in Queensland.
0: The bar at the time was a very important social place for men. What happened in the bar was not necessarily by prior arrangement. Uh, It wasn't a meeting in that sense. You would run into people in the pub and some of them would be people that you didn't know well and there was a a good exchange, a sort of open exchange between people, a kind of social activity that actually wasn't available to women at all unless they would need to be uh, chaperoned or to have some suitable male around who would be an excuse for speaking to another man, as it were, because it wasn't uh, <laughs> it wasn't improper. Uh, different world. <laughs> a different world indeed.
1: Now, that world changed when two ladies walked into a bar. I know, it sounds like the start of a terrible joke, doesn't it? Two ladies walked into a bar that happened. It was the Regatta Hotel in Brisbane, to be exact. Now, those two ladies were Merle Thornton and Rosalie Bogner.
0: Well, we asked first for a lemonade because we were keen on stretching the law to cover what we were doing. Merle
1: and Rosalie were up to something that day in late March. After they downed the lemonade, they asked for a drink, right? Like a proper drink, you know, an alcoholic drink.
0: And it caused quite the kerfuffle. They asked us to leave and we declined and they went and got the publican and he asked us to leave and we declined and they rang the police and first a couple of local uniformed police came along and they had a look around and you know, asked us to leave and we by this time chained ourselves to the bar so that he couldn't physically remove us without a bit of trouble. Uh, there was just a weak little chain with a sort of two and sixpenny little padlock on it. So what did you do? Just refused to leave? Yes and they had to would have had to manhandle us to get it outside. And that that was another kind of step that they were trying to avoid taking. We just said, no, we weren't going. Let me just butt in here for a second, right,
1: just to reflect on the fact that these two women had physically chained themselves to the bar of one of the best known hotels in Brisbane and all to protest not being allowed to drink in public. I mean, can you imagine Merle and Rosalie just packing their purses that morning. Uh, Notebook? Check. Cardigan? Check. Metal chain and padlock? Check, check. I told
0: you, they were up to something. It was actually arranged carefully. The objective was to get into the evening television news. You need to understand that television was still new, not everyone would have a television set but some did and to get on the television was the buzz. And so part of the reason for choosing the regatta was that it was very close to the ABC headquarters and the timing was good for them to uh, get it on camera by the evening news and I really wanted to make a fuss about the fact that women were excluded from ordinary public social life.
1: Here's what some people had to say at the time in an ABC News report on the protest in 1965.
0: They're not suitable places for the gentler sex to make a habit of frequenting. I think it makes a woman a bit on the low side, drinking in a public bath. They should have the right to freeze themselves if they come in here.
1: So Merle and Rosalie's protests received enormous kind of media coverage with news of their bar-chaining antics, making it all the way to Moscow and London. It even nabbed them an interview on the Four Corners program on ABC TV. Here's the audio from the broadcast in 1965. Half a century's traffic has flowed past Brisbane's Regatta Hotel since the suffragettes rattled their chains in England. But today at the Regatta Hotel, women are still fighting for equality. The right to drink with men in public bars in Queensland in 1965. It wasn't a very expensive protest. The dog chain cost only five and six, and the padlocks were only two bob each. But whatever the cost, the women felt, it was the principle of the thing that mattered. If the publican served them with liquor, he faced a fine of ten to twenty pounds. And so did anyone else in the bar who bought them a beer or even shouted them a brandy, lime and soda. Now, you can imagine the backlash was swift. Um, One of the most vocal critics at the time was a Labor MP named Harold Dean who said that the prestige of womanhood is too high and too valuable and too precious to be destroyed by a vulgarism.
0: However, after an hour of doing the soft glove and the hard glove and all these tricks when we still wouldn't go without being removed, He left saying, so long girls, have a good night, don't drink too much. So what we had actually established was that the police were not prepared to enforce the law about drinking in bars. So that was the end of it really. So did you get a drink? Yep. We got lots of drinks (laughs) provided by (laughs) lots of people in the bar. Uh, You know, men (laughs) who had no trouble getting (laughs) served. Now, it took another
1: five years after the protests, so March 1970 to be precise, for Section 59A of the Liquor Act to be repealed. Finally! Allowing ladies to legally drink at a public bar. Cheers to that, I say. It seems insane, though, right, that there was ever a time when we weren't allowed by law to drink at a bar and everyone thought that was fine, nay, preferable. It's a sign, truly, of how far we've come. But if you think the no-drinking law sounds ridiculous now, wait till you hear about the marriage bar. Because that day at the Regatta Hotel, that was actually just the beginning for Merle. The marriage bar was next. So if you were married, so just just so I can get this straight, if you were single, you could work in the public service. Yes. But then the minute that you got married, you would no longer be allowed to work in the public service.
0: Is that right? Yes, that's correct. The regulation said a woman on her marriage would be deemed to have resigned, and if she had more than eight years of service, she was to receive a week's pay for every year of service, quote, to compensate her for loss of a career, unquote. That's actually the wording of the... (gasps) Wow. Essentially, the marriage
1: bar required terminating the employment of women after they got married. So married women in the public service, right, faced a choice. Give up your job or lie about your marriage. So Merle opted for the latter. She was working for the ABC at the time, and she kept her marriage a secret because she knew that if it got out there, there would be very swift consequences.
0: A friend of mine who was doing the stats for the paper that we were responsible for, she married one weekend and came back on Monday. And at about 11 o'clock in the morning, someone rang and asked to speak to Mrs. So-and-so and the recipient of the call said there's no mrs so and so here and the caller said oh she used to be mrs blah blah but she's married now and by the time she was got to answer the phone of course the pimp had gone and had got her fired so who who
1: had gone to get her
0: fired the person who rang up and said she'd been married. Oh, so someone had deliberately called up and
1: outed someone as being married to get them fired.
0: That's right, yes. Oh, God. So that's why I had to take considerable trouble to conceal my marriage. It wasn't just easy. This was a time when even the hint of a marriage could get you fired. Imagine trying to conceal
1: a pregnancy. No chance, mate. So Merle founded the Equal Opportunities for Women Association with the primary goal of removing the marriage bar.
0: We actually were successful in having it raised in Parliament and that was equivalent to getting it changed at that time the government of the day. Uh, Bill Hayden became a member of our Equal Opportunities for Women Association and he introduced the change into the House. He was able to move it from the opposition and the government the next morning said they had been going to do it anyway and the Labor Party had known that they were going to do it. I was really delighted
1: the bill removing the marriage bar came into effect on the 18th of November 1966 so thanks to Merle and no doubt to the other legends who joined her in this of course she didn't do it alone but by 1970 Australian women were allowed to marry and keep their jobs in the public service and they were allowed to raise a drink to that in a public bar not a bad go for five years surely it all gets better from there by the time we hit the 80s
2: Let's do it. Judith Lucy, how old are you? Well, I'm well, Jan. How are you?
3: <laughs> yeah, I
2: love the way you've just jumped right in there. I am 50 <laughs> and proud of it, Jan. How old are you? I am 33. 33. Well, it's all ahead of you. Yeah. By i By that I mean menopause, Jan, (laughs) which I am currently experiencing and I couldn't feel hotter in every sense. Oh my God, I can imagine. Somebody open a
0: window in the
2: studio. Oh yeah.
1: (laughs) In case you couldn't tell by the voice, which I'm sure you could, that's comedian Judith Lucy. Now I figured who better to talk us through the 80s and 90s than someone who went through them properly
2: everyone was wearing Doc Martens, no one was shaving under their arms. You know, if a man opened a door for me, I would, well, I wouldn't be rude to him, but I would certainly question why he was doing it. Mm. And I think there was a naivety there too, in that for a lot of us, we thought, oh, it's just going to have a linear narrative.
1: The idea of progress being linear I think is an interesting one. So by the time the 80s rolled around, women accounted for just over 35% of the workforce, right? The contraceptive pill had been a thing for almost two decades. It was kind of normalized by then. Equal minimum wage had been extended to women workers. No-fault divorce had been introduced. That's huge. Rape in marriage had been outlawed. Sigourney Weaver had just burst onto the screen as the hero lead in Alien. Things seemed to, you know, be moving forward
2: i think we really sort of stupidly presumed that things were just going to keep getting better and better and not just in terms of feminism but in terms of you know in terms of racism in terms of homophobia we just thought oh, the world is full of promise and life is just going to keep being amazing but didn't it get better but then, of course, it always seems to be the way you know. Then there's an amazing backlash, which I mean, I like when I was growing up. Like the idea of getting married was crazy. The idea of changing your name to your husband's name—I knew no one that did that. And then all of a sudden, I know sudden, so many people. Yeah, who do exactly. It. So I actually wound up having a lunch with a bunch of women. This was this was a few years ago now. But the youngest woman at the table and she was a journalist. We were having this very conversation and she turned to us and she said, oh, I thought legally you had to change your name, which which gave the rest of us pause. And I remember also saying it was interesting for me to see the film Alien because for me personally the film that really blew my mind was Selma and Louise. I'm assuming you've seen it, Jan. I have. I love it. And how old were you when you saw it?
1: I was probably about 19.
2: Yeah, right. I'm trying to think how old I would have been, I guess. I mean, obviously I saw it when it came out. I can't remember what year that was now, but early 20s, I'm assuming. And I went and I saw it with my best friend. It's the first film I've ever gone back to the cinema and seen again, mm. um almost immediately. And it was mind-blowing to see a film that was about two women, two friends, two female friends who loved each other. And I was only just thinking about this the other day, how, my God, my 20s were a bumper decade when it came to just having men wank at me and being abused from car windows. And just to see those women, I can't tell you how my best friend and I just walked out of that cinema and felt that, you know, we could do anything. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, Shooting people isn't the answer. Sure, you don't
1: want to be robbing convenience stores at gunpoint. No, and
2: I don't really want to drive into the Grand Canyon either, but (laughs) I'd never seen that before. And, you know, how many films had men my age already seen with guys just doing whatever the hell they wanted and, you know, robbing stores or shooting things up or or whatever, you know, thinking that they could do whatever they wanted. And this was the first time I'd seen women doing that and women who I liked and women who I could relate to. And hang on a minute, it was a Hollywood movie? Yeah, yeah. And it was a hugely popular Hollywood movie as well. Yes, but then we had to stop that and not give women roles like that for another 20 or 30 years. That's what kills me about, you know, strong female leads. It's like Hollywood goes, oh, yeah, that does kind of work. Let's do it again in another 15 years. If we take the representation
1: of women on screen as an example, you know, this is something that we talk about very often these days, things do seem to have stalled somewhat. There there was a test formed in 1985, right, known as the Bechdel Test. Uh, It was formed to measure the representation of women in fictional films, right? So to pass the Bechdel Test, a film needed to have the following things. Two female characters with names who talk to each other about something other than a dude. That's it. And yet you would be surprised at how many of the biggest Hollywood films today don't actually meet that very basic criteria. And I do feel, you know, like we are living in this moment. Like I said, where we are having these conversations about representation more and more and where certain voices are being elevated. And we're looking back at the past with a bit of a gendered lens and looking at what worked and what didn't and why and how it can be improved.
2: Before I came here, I was on the tram and I was listening to the podcast Slow Burn and it's all about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. And I suppose it's hard for me not to talk about the incredible shift that I think there's just been in the last year or so with the whole Me Too movement and how now it's, it, you know, we are kind of going back and looking at stuff like Bill Clinton and we are just reevaluating all of that. And I think that this shift that we're currently experiencing is probably the biggest I've seen in my lifetime.
1: Wow, that's a big call. You're talking about the Me Too movement?
2: I'm talking about the Me Too movement, and I guess everything that has kind of radiated out from that, really. Like, I would call myself and have called myself a feminist since I knew what feminism was when I read about it when I was 16. Mm. And even in the 80s, and I think a lot of women my age saw the 80s as a very progressive time, I think even compared to that, what we're seeing now is, well, it's, you know, revolutionary might be too strong a word, but it's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible to have behaviour under the microscope to such a degree that it is now. Um, can actually. I didn't expect a... that I'd jump in and just be talking like, you know, I've like, got a PhD in feminism in the uh, first five minutes.
1: <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I thought this was going to be about pop culture, so Judith. I don't, I. Know, I don't know and what went wrong no, or right. Me
2: neither. I, I blame <laughs> Bill Clinton.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think a lot of people blame Bill Clinton for a lot of things. But in the same way that we're sort of looking back, I think we're also looking forward. Do you want me to tell you a really depressing thing? Yes. That's Jamila Rizvi, a journalist, author and a lady about town who basically gets paid to write about feminism for a living. Not a bad gig. Jan, how old are you?
3: I am 33. Mm. So that means, I'm 32, that means statistically for both you and I, on average, as Australian women, our salaries have already reached their peak. Oh,
1: don't. Yeah, sorry.
3: The average Australian woman's salary peaks at age 31.
1: Oh, have mercy. I work for the nation's second favourite public broadcaster, she you know
3: <laughs> <laughs> that is? How depressing is that? And the, I think the, the next most depressing thing is that for men, it peaks almost a decade later. So that's a decade more of climbing a ladder. That's a decade more experience, a decade more to be better at your job, a decade more of being promoted. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the average Australian woman has her first baby aged between 30 and 31. Those no, I don't think it's any coincidence. Are absolutely linked. The wage gap.
1: Dum, dum, dum. That was, I don't know what that noise was that I just made. But the wage gap is something that we've been hearing about more and more in recent years too. And I think that there's a reason. Look, it sort of makes sense that we're talking about this now, right? Women have been in the workforce for nearly half a century. I think we've had the time to assess what's working, what's not, and the wage gap is not. What it effectively means is that over a lifetime, on average, a woman earns 14.6% less than a man. This is according to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. Now, there are many factors as to why this is the case right? It's not just as simple as saying a man and a woman get the same job and one is paid less. That's not really how it works. One of the factors, the key one, in my humble estimation, is children, namely the having and the caring of them. Yeah, I don't think it's any coincidence that I literally lose sleep at night over this question of when do we have a baby. If I tell you the amount of times that I have decided, yep, I'm going to go off the pill and then I go off the pill for three days and then just get the fear of God put into me about career and about salary and about climbing the ladder and about where I'm going to be in five years that I immediately
3: go back on the pill. I've done that about three times. Oh, Jen, I feel you. If I wasn't bad at taking tablets, I wouldn't have a child. (laughs) (laughs) On that note <laughs> And there we are. And scene. Don't get drunk the night you get engaged, kids. Um, there you go. That is that don't is really that in a podcast. That's
1: I'm definitely <laughs> gonna keep that in this podcast. Yeah, like I'm gonna leave that one out. Uh, but when to have babies, you know, that is a very big question. And I would wager a bet that women think about it a little bit more than what men do, because women
3: feel perhaps like they have more to lose there's more concern within workplaces around women going off and having children and that you will have invested in a woman and then she just disappears so that there's a a tendency to pay women less and value women less around that. By the time a woman reaches the sort of key average childbearing age, she's going to be earning substantially less than a bloke and then that pay gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger again. It sort of takes off once more once she reaches those childbearing age.
1: Now, I don't think I need to tell anyone how to make burbies here. Uh, It usually takes two people. So why should having children adversely affect one party more than the other? I mean, more women work now, so why don't more men stay at home? You know, changes happened in one direction hasn't really quite happened in the other direction. And one reason, I think, is because there's really no incentive for men to stay home. I mean, I'm sure men like their children. Of course they do. But why go through the rigmarole of applying for leave and all of the cultural baggage that comes with it when someone else can do it for you? There needs to be an incentive. Take Sweden as an example. They have a use it or lose it policy, right? So fathers, or the not primary parent, are entitled to three months paid parental leave. If they don't use it, it disappears, So they think, well, what the hell, I may as well take up the offer.
3: The one I like even better is Finland, which actually gives the paid parental leave. It doesn't attach to the parent. It attaches to the child. A child is entitled to a certain amount of paid parental leave from their two carers, and the child gets more if the carers take that evenly. Ah. So, for example, if mum takes 12 months and dad takes two months, all of that's paid. But if mum takes 12 months and dad takes 12 months, you get the full payment for both years, but if mum's the only one doing the caring, she can't just take two years. That's not
1: how it works. so it can be a maximum of two years, but it has to be evenly split between the mother and the father. That's right.
3: One person can't take more than half of it.
1: That's genius. That feels like genius. Yeah, super smart, right? I think we're far from Finland's parental leave policy here in Australia, but maybe... Maybe that is the challenge for the next decade. Maybe someone needs to chain themselves to a childcare centre. I mean, it does sound drastic. But then again, so I was chaining yourself to a bar in 1965, I mean, that sounds drastic now. <laughs> there are so many aspects of our lives that could be better. You know, we haven't even touched on rates of violence or sexual assault or harassment or lack of superannuation or lack of representation in film, on TV, in ads, in comedy, in parliament... Or the tiny number of women CEOs and women on boards. Or the lack of access to resources for migrant women. Or the low health outcomes for Aboriginal girls and women. I mean, pick one. No, seriously, pick one. Just one. And think about how to change it and who to change it with. Go and ask your nan about what it was like for her growing up. And then go and ask your mum. And then ask your mate. And then ask what you can do to affect change for the next generation of women. Be a Merle. You've been listening to Sexism and the City. Thank you so much for being here. Sexism and the City is a Plan International Australia podcast. Plan is an organisation that works to tackle the root causes of inequality facing girls around the world. The podcast is hosted by me, Jan Fran. The series is produced by Kayla Robertson. Associate producer is Gavin Neighbour. It's mixed by Gavin Neighbour at the Hallwood Recording Studio at the University of Melbourne. Researched by Andrea Cano-Batero and Madeline Spencer. Artwork is by Donna Kelly. Theme music is by Paul Greenstein. If you have any thoughts on this episode or you want to find out more about Plan's work, head to Plan International Australia's website at plan.org.au forward slash podcast or you can find me on Facebook under Jan Fran. I would love to hear from you anytime. Slide into my DMs. Thanks for joining me, everyone. See you soon.